I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Memoir Book Club. What if one day, instead of being Celebrity Memoir Book Club, we came in and said that we were the news? What if we were Celebrity Memoir? Not the book club, just the memoirs. (laughs) Just the existential idea of a famous person (laughs) recounting their life. Luckily for you, we're not Celebrity Memoir nor the news. We are two comedians and best friends. We're going to let you in on the way we would talk about people behind their backs with the facts in your ears. The way that it is illegal to do on the news. So don't come here looking for your nightly news. This is not your local reporter. This is the two cattiest people you ever met that you like in little doses, but not all of the time, giving you a story they just read this morning. (laughs) And helping us out with that, I want to thank Everly Well for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you, all at an affordable and transparent price. With over 30 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the test that makes the most sense for you to get the answers you need, like the women's health test or the food sensitivity test. Everly Well is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com worm. And thank you to Credit Karma for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Claire, may you offer us a look into your week? Yeah. Can I say something? Sure. I've been holding this back from you for a while. Uh-oh. Three days. No. <laughs> because something I do that I know annoys you is I'll be like, starting tomorrow, this is my new life. And I'll be like, this is what I'm going to do every day. This is my new schedule, blah, blah, blah. And, th- and then I last like 48 hours, if that, maybe 32, if that. So what I did this week, I had a new idea about how to live my life and be a sure. different person. <laughs> and I'm on day three. Oh, wow. What's your new thing? Yeah. If you guys are following me on TikTok, you know I've been looking for a way to figure out a schedule that works for me because I think my problem is I'm quite ambitious, but I am unfocused, undisciplined, and maybe (laughs) even lazy. (laughs) Ambitious yet lazy. Is that the title? No, because I think I've hacked it. Biohacked. Sure. I have stumbled upon what I believe is a successful way to organize my day and we're three days in. So I wasn't going to tell you until I was a week in, but I feel like three days is as good as a week. It's our work week. A baker's week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what is your hack? Okay. I'm really productive in the mornings. So what I've been doing is the night before I make like a to-do list and the hardest, most focus required task I do from like 7.30 AM till 11. And then at 11, I go to the gym and then I like work out, shower, eat, and then I come to the office and I do the rest of my to-dos. Lovely. It's more exciting to me than to anybody else. That's true. <laughs> but I'm excited for you. Thank you so much. I actually think a lot of people are constantly on a productivity journey with me. I believe that is true. <gasps> Ashley. Yes, Claire. How was your week this week? You're a celebrity in my eyes, so give it to <laughs> us good. I would call this week, you were right, self Several weeks ago, I made a prediction that I was going to have to become very steadfast in my lifestyle of singleness, where I knew that I was going into a wedding season and people were going to have things to say. Okay. And I had the first wedding of my season last weekend and it was like a lovely wedding. I had an incredible time and the couple, I'm very happy for them and they looked beautiful and were so cute and in love. And I'm so excited to see it. And then, I mean, my mom wasn't even trying to be rude, but she was like, does it bother you that you don't have a plus one for any of these weddings? And a couple other people said stuff to me and it's like, literally, no, I know people at the weddings. I don't understand why you have to have 
boyfriend to have fun. Can I say that I actually also did not understand why you would need to bring a date to go hang out with the people you've known for 20 years. Longer. The reason you're at that wedding is because you're friends with the people. The idea that you couldn't have fun with your own friends, I think is a... Yeah. It's a you problem. I mean, I know a lot of times people dance in twos, but at weddings, they spread out and they dance in threes, fours, fives, circles even. Mosh pits. <laughs> so I did have to like defend myself or just kind of yield the questions of like, so you're here alone? And it's like, no, I'm not here alone. I'm here with 45 people that I know. <laughs> and then beyond that, another 350 people going to a wedding alone is a lot like going to a movie alone. I'm like, you don't talk to anybody during a movie and you go to a wedding to socialize. Like, it would actually be weird to be on a date at a wedding. To go to a wedding and only talk to your date would make you actually a horrible wedding guest. <laughs> So then on top of that, there were people there who were like kind of weirdly sectioned off, couples who were obviously in a fight, couples who were just like being fucking weird. And I was just like, yeah, being here alone, or I'm obviously not alone. Like I went with people. I knew most of them. And being able to move from group to group and dance with all my friends and have a great time was great. If I'd been in a fighting couple then I would have been in the corner fighting instead of having the night of my life. Are you looking at those fighting couples and being like, wish I was them? Oh, to have a plus one. It's so nice to go home to someone I cannot stand right now. (laughs) It was so weird. And it really is one of those things where you're like, I'm not like obsessed with being single. If I met someone I liked, it would be cool to be in a relationship. But the fact that I'm being constantly asked to defend that status, it's like, yeah, no, I am happy to be single compared to being people who are in a bad mood because of the person they chose. Yeah, exactly. You're not someone who's like, I never want to date or anything. So what they're really asking you is, do you still stand by your decision to not settle? Yes. Do you still have self-worth? Do you still think you deserve happiness and, and respect like, in a relationship? For a few more minutes, yes, but that door is closing. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not. It's wide open. Never been opener. Also, I'm your plus one into your October wedding. Yeah. So I'll have them. I'll say, say that to my fucking face. Uncle, you don't think I'm a plus one? You don't think I'm a hole? (laughs) A hole. Like a hole, like W H O L. Oh my God, I thought you meant a hole. Like, I know what you mean. Now I hear it. Like the way a red pillar views the lady. (laughs) I meant like a complete unit, a one. Oh, okay. A one. A plus one. An entire plus one. A hole. A whole one, one whole. A cool. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. Should we get into this week's hole? <laughs> I'm so sorry I said that. I love this week's memoirs so much. We brought to you guys the most beautiful, innocent, pure hearted dummy that we could find. I wish she was my aunt. I wish she was my boyfriend. I love her. <laughs> to know her is to love her. I wish I knew her because I love her. Denise Richards has had many a life in America. She was a good Midwest girly. She was a young model in Japan. She was a sex symbol royale. She was Denise Sheen. Denise Sheen, wife of Charlie. And then she was disgraced wife of Charlie Sheen. And then she became a real housewife. This book came out in 2011. So it's very much her answering for her ex-husband, which is something no woman should have to do. But she was forced. No woman should have to, but if anyone had to, it was her because boy, oh boy, did people skewer her ass. And I'm really excited this week on the Patreon, we're going to do some like Teffy level deep dive research and give you guys the Denise and Charlie relationship. And then all the way through the breakdown, the tiger blood, the winning, what was it? Double winning. 
goddesses the goddesses so we're gonna give you the whole breakdown of what actually happened because denise does an incredible job of being like i'm just like you you know when your marriage falls apart they're all the same anyway we got divorced and i'm like denise i do not think my divorce is similar to your divorce i have to say the way that this book is relatable for something so unrelatable is artistic she takes every single thing that's ever happened to anyone and really whittles it down to the basic human experience and you're just like it literally isn't but it's like as if she was saying her house was on fire and she's like you know when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're toasty we've all felt it <laughs> it's interesting because there's a writer's adage that says there's universality in the specifics and it's yeah. this idea if you get really into the specifics of a memory more people will relate to it than if you're general yes she somehow does the opposite she is so general that you're just like is this my story <laughs> she's like you know when your heart breaks but you learn to love again and then you're like I do. Yeah, I've been there. So this book came out in 2011 and she was born February 17th, 1971. So she was 40 when this book came out. And just to give you some context, you know, Charlie Sheen was in the media. We were three years out of a recession. I was a sophomore in college. Charlie Sheen was not in the media. Charlie Sheen was the media. I do not remember a moment that year that wasn't about Charlie Sheen. I feel like to not have consumed Sheen content, you were Amish. <laughs> So that's where we're at. Ashley, take it away. So this book opens up in a beautiful rundown of who Denise Richards is, a list. 25 things you may want to know about me right now. She doesn't presume that you definitely want to know, but you might want to know. I like the idea that at one point she must have been reading a People magazine and much like men do with Playboy, she went, wow, the articles are so good. <laughs> For her to be like, I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> Where am I right now? At home with my laptop on my kitchen table. I have to say, I read that one and I said, I don't have time for this shit, Denise. Okay, I wish you'd gotten through it because I'm going to read you one more buffer and then the most haunting line I've ever seen. <laughs> what would be my dream job? A role in a movie with Quentin Tarantino directing. And now, what would I change about myself? To be less trusting? That is ominous as fuck. If I could change one thing about me, I wouldn't love as much. <laughs> Well, I will say, I don't think she can change that about herself. I think Denise is impervious to learning. <laughs> <laughs> this woman is not somebody who hardens. She is soft like an overripe avocado that just could be smushed in your hand. And beautiful in the way that a mushed avocado is beautiful. I mean, she is so beautiful. She, and I will make this argument throughout the book, is the female version of Matthew McConaughey, where she was just born with a great attitude and then lived a life that only reinforced that great attitude. And it's really incredible to hear the perspective of somebody who's like, hey, if you think everything's gonna work out, it will. And then it's so interesting when things don't work out and they're like, this is a fluke. This is a flaw in the ointment. Something is teaching me a lesson because there's no reason that something wouldn't just work out. And I'm lucky that this happened. <laughs> so she starts with the introduction. If life were a dance, what kind would yours be? Ballet, modern, country line, the twist, salsa, paso double, a waltz. I should have known right then and there. This is the quintessential opening line of anybody who's done Dancing with the Stars. I would love to see a Dancing with the Stars contestant to memoirist pipeline because I almost think it might be 100% of people. There is a certain C-less celebrity who's saying yes to literally anything that both writes a memoir for no reason and goes on Dancing with the Stars. Can I tell you, the way that Dancing with the Stars, we'll get to it later, I cannot believe that Dancing with the Stars is legal based on the way it's been written about in memoirs. 
it's a torture chamber. I think that must be part of the appeal is the way that they're like, we will dance these stars to death. <laughs> it's celebrity death match dancing edition. <laughs> they're like, if you want to see a beautiful C-lister that you haven't seen in years crying, <laughs> tune into Dancing with the Stars. And then they'll be like, my body's never been so tight. <laughs> anyway, so she opens with that. She says, I wish mine were a graceful ballet. I'm never going to be that perfect or practiced. And frankly, I don't care. If my life is more of an improvised two-step with the emphasis on improvisation, so be it. That's my style. And one, I think many people would recognize as their own. So she goes through to be like, listen, there have been a lot of ups and downs. And she says, in The Real Girl Next Door, that's the name of her book, I've written the book I wish that I had had on my nightstand for the past eight years. It's full of stories that I would have wanted to hear from a friend, the kind that could reassure me that I'd get through my problems too. Okay, I do want to say she has this epiphany throughout the book where she's like, when you're pregnant, talking to people who've been pregnant is so helpful. When you're dealing with grief, talking to people who have felt grief is so helpful. What she went through, I don't know that she would have found camaraderie. To be like... When you're going through an insanely public toxic divorce with a drug addict with unlimited funds and like somehow the approval of the public, it's helpful to talk to someone who's going through a very, very messy public divorce with a drug addict, alcoholic with unlimited funds and public approval on his side. I guess this is for the next person who marries Charlie Sheen. Brooke Mueller. The the next, next person. Brooke Mueller picked this book up and was like, wow, I lived this, man. This is the book I'm so glad I have on my nightstand as I'm going through. I will say, although I don't know that this book could help anybody because the specifics of her story are one, unrelatable, and two, not even shared in this book. I do think this book succeeds. And if you had ever wished you were as beautiful as Disney's Richards or famous or anything, you're like actually no my life is probably better I don't know what you're going through in your life but it does feel like Denise Rogers went through hell I'm trying to think there was one other memoirist and I wish I remembered who it was who like successfully convinced us and it's always people who don't think their life is that bad and are like I don't feel sorry for myself but I just had a bad seven or eight years and I'm just like wow I am so grateful I'm not you. I don't care if I never succeed, if I'm the uggoist bitch on the world. I would <laughs> The st- uggoist bitch on the world. <laughs> I'm not inside the planet. I'm on the utter crust on it. <laughs> yeah, unless you go swimming, then you go in the earth. <laughs> anyway, I have to say, I feel very sorry for Denise Richards and I am so happy I'm not her. <laughs> so Denise Richards is just nothing but a clear-eyed, full-hearted sweetheart. She says... Literally, I don't pass judgment and I don't hold grudges. Clear-eyed and calm, I move forward. I don't always know where I'm going, nor is what I want to accomplish always easy. But I've learned that if I'm open and honest with myself and others, if I ask enough people for advice, if I'm not afraid to face the truth, and if I put aside any fear of failure, I'll be able to figure things out and usually end up where I need to be, which isn't always where I intended to go. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) She's just like a dizzy beautiful woman on a road you spin her around and it's fine I'm hoping to get to a place and when I closed my eyes and took four steps I was in a place (laughs) all I could think is that quote from the great Gatsby where she's like the best thing in life a girl could be is a beautiful fool and I was like that's Denise Richards (laughs) she did it she's the best thing in life you could be anyway she did this beautiful thing in her book that I actually commend her for it's she didn't have chapters or sections she had 11 parts Yeah. And then each of those parts had like three or four mini chapters in it. But I actually found that to be very breezy and readable. I mean, this book is very readable because she writes with like a perfect simplicity where you can't tell if she's like a genius or an idiot. It's very flowy. I could tell. I couldn't. I think Janice Richards might be the best writer in the world. (laughs) 
She keeps it in timeline order, man, which is beautiful. So let's start at the beginning. As with anyone, to understand me, you have to know my family and how I was raised. And also to understand that family has always meant everything to me and still does. And then she says, I learned at an early age that it doesn't matter what people look like or what their shortcomings may be or how much or how little money they have. I was raised to treat everybody equally and to treat someone how I would like to be treated. So her parents met when they were young. Her dad went off to the Vietnam War. When he came back, she got pregnant. At 16, my mom got pregnant with me. And on August 1st, 1970, shortly after her 17th birthday, they exchanged vows in the local courthouse. On that same day, in that same courthouse, her parents' divorce was finalized. Yeesh. Her parents got married when her mom was 17 and her dad was 21. And she was born a few months later in February. 18 months later, my sister Michelle arrived. But her parents loved each other so much. And they loved them. They were a cute little family. They lived in Illinois and eventually moved to Downers Grove. You know what that is? Yeah. Where is it? It's right outside Chicago. I think it's like a west suburb. Okay. Anyway, my parents built something together, a house, a family, and a life. So they like slowly fixed up this house and she saw that as a real metaphor for who they were. But then when she was in high school, her dad was like, we've got to leave this house behind. I am too cold and I want to go to California. I just want to say she grew up in a really happy family. She said, my dad was home every night for dinner at six and our weekends always involved family-oriented activities. My parents reserved one evening a week for themselves, date night. So like they are just so cute and she loves her parents and she's very close with them her whole life. She does have this very Matthew McConaughey-esque way of being like, and they did no wrong. Even that time, they They sold sold her dog without telling her. So one day she just came home and her beloved German shepherd was gone. And they were like, oh yeah, we sent it to a farm because we're moving one day. And the dog can't be in an apartment. Sorry, you didn't get to say goodbye. She's like, I see now that that toughened me up. And I'm like, wow, tough. (laughs) They gave away your dog. (laughs) I do think you could have said goodbye, but it's very Matthew McConaughey to be like, I appreciate it. Everything hard was a lesson. My God, the earth I would tear up if someone gave bug away without telling me. So when they were in high school, her dad built telephone poles. And so in the winter, it was miserable in Chicago. And he was like, what if I could build telephone poles in the summer year round? Let's go to California. So they all moved out to California. And she says, even though nobody wanted to go, her mom was very supportive publicly. And she's like, I have no idea what she was saying privately, but... My parents always had a united front publicly and we all went out there. And then her dad gets fired. And so they, as a family, she's so just like sweet and understanding. She's like, me and my sister were so hard on my dad for uprooting us and making me change our whole life. Because when she moved to California, she didn't even make the cheerleading squad. She was like, it fucking sucked there. But then because her dad is on hard times, the mom ends up getting a job. She and her sister get jobs. And she's like, we have to make dad feel less bad about this because he's getting pretty mopey. So they just rally behind him. She sits down next to him and says, dad, I know you've been worrying about us. Don't worry anymore. We're going to get through this. I let him know that I was back on the team. I know it's hard, but mom and Michelle and I all talked and we'll make it work. We did. So everyone got jobs and shipped in. I mean, it's so leave it to Beaver. It just works. So her mom had alopecia for her whole childhood and didn't have any hair. But then when they moved out to California, her mom's hair miraculously grew back. And she was like, see, it all works out. <laughs> She's like, we didn't have money, but my mom had hair. We had something more valuable than money, hair. It's fascinating to look back on this now because I've put my girls in similar situations, though they're younger. In creating a new post-married life, I had to take certain calculated risks and I didn't know if I would have done them as readily if not for the precedent my dad set. I got the confidence I needed as a woman from my mom and my dad gave me the courage to endure and carry on. 
So it all works out. Beautiful. So when she's in high school, her mom is like, has anybody ever told you you're really beautiful? You should try and be a model. And she had no reason to do it except for that. She was like, yeah, sure. That sounds fun. Why not? And she goes to the mall and she tries out for this modeling pageant and she comes in second, but a guy comes up to her at the end and he's like, I'm an agent. I'd love for you to be a model. She was really nervous about it. But then her mom said that she should think about it in terms of having fun instead of worrying about becoming a supermodel. And that's advice she's taken with her her whole life, that you can just try things and see if you're good at them or not. You don't have to be good at everything. You don't have to be the best. You could just be having fun, which is really good advice. Denise Richards, colon, never wrong. I told you she's a genius. She goes up to LA. Her parents are very skeptical, but the agent is legit. And he's like, this is going to be really hard. You're not going to get a lot of jobs. It's going to be a lot of driving and hours and rejection. Do you still want to do it? And she's like, yeah, why not? So she does it for a couple of years. And then she says, I kept my new career a secret. Talking about it seemed like bragging. And that wasn't my style, nor was drawing attention to myself. Why was she the most humble, beautiful girl in the world? I kind of feel like she doesn't know she was beautiful. She's always like, it doesn't really matter what you look like. Looks come and go, blah, blah. And I'm just like, no, but you're the most beautiful girl in the world. <laughs> She says that nobody in her high school thought it was a big deal that she was in magazines. It was just something she did, like soccer or piano. So when she goes to graduate high school, she fails biology. And because of this, she can't get into any colleges. So she decides she's just going to move to Hollywood and be a model actor. Can I say, it like does not seem like it could have just been that one class, right? She said otherwise she was an AB student. So if she was an AB student and got like one bad grade, she couldn't go to college? Is, is that true? That's what she says. We're just going to go with it. She says, I suppose I was part realist and part dreamer, an admirable outlook for an 18-year-old, if you ask me. In fact, I would advise people of any age to look to the future with one eye focused on what's practical and probable and the other eye on what might be possible if you take a few chances. This is such a McConaughey line. Life is dull without hope. Hope that life will contain opportunities for something new, whatever that may be. In my life, it turned out to be an adventure. This is the response to what's your backup plan. She said, I don't have one. That's what I'm going to do. And look, it worked out. So right away, she does start booking. I mean, she'd been booking things all through high school. Immediately after college, she's sent to Japan. She just does two months there. And she talks about how there, they really wanted her to do lingerie modeling because that was the bread and butter of her agency. And she refused. I wasn't altogether uncomfortable with my body, but I didn't have a figure that allowed me to brim with self-confidence in all departments. And being photographed in my underwear bothered me. Ironic that years later, I actually posed completely naked. Go figure. And then in Japan, she like gets kind of a taste of the model lifestyle. She says, when hanging out together, I saw them use drugs, alcohol, and casual sex to deal with the boredom and loneliness of being away from home. I was there to work, not party. I didn't get dragged into that scene. So she moves back to Hollywood and decides she wants to become an actress. She enrolls in acting classes and just keeps modeling on the side to make money. This is a fun taste of what acting was like for Denise Richards and why she wanted to get into it. She says, unlike modeling where my size and physique would limit my potential, I knew acting was different. Well, depending on which role you play. Also, acting was something I was passionate about. The door to success was wide open to anyone of any size, shape, look, and talent. I love that she is like, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how good you are at acting. Anyone can do acting. Also, the idea that the door to success was wide open to anyone of any shape, size, look, and talent. That is not true. That's just not true. You know, Hollywood famously accepting of any body shape. The talent thing actually might be the truest of all of those. It really <laughs> might be, but I do think it has to do with your size, shape, and look. Like if you have the size, shape, and look, you don't have to have the talent. She just has so many things that I'm like, I wonder how it really went. She talks about getting a new apartment and she found a studio apartment in a building with security in the valley. Though in talking to the manager, I encountered a problem. I couldn't afford it. Not by a long shot. Luckily, they had one low-income unit available and I qualified. 
Is that how it went? Or was the guy just like, oh, I have a different unit though. And uh, I, well, how much did you make? Oh my, oh, no, that's perfect. Actually, that's exactly <laughs> how much you need to make. That's good. Move in now. <laughs> Can I say for anyone that was around in like, when was this the 90s? Yeah. What were there leases? Because whenever we read memoirs about like, Hollywood in the 80s and 90s everyone is moving every like three fucking weeks that's so true I actually had that exact thought she's just like I moved out I didn't like the apartment so I left and then I met a friend and I moved in with them and then we always read this it's always like and then I popped to here and then I was there and then I spent three months here and five months there and you're like how though the only person who ever had to deal with lease problems was Naya Rivera <laughs> everyone else has always just been like I didn't like it so I left <laughs> So then she decides she wants to become an actress. She takes professional headshots and sends them to an agency. She signs with the Harry Gold agency who was like, you need to be auditioning as a child because one, you look young and they'd rather have a 20 year old play a teenager and two, they're not gonna be mad that you have literally no experience. So that's what she does. And she's out there hustling. She gets a couple guest star roles pretty regularly. She also says this thing to her dad that is my favorite Denise Richardism. Always concerned, my dad warned me about the high percentage of Screen Actor Guild members who were unemployed. I told him not to worry. I planned on being part of the percentage who worked. I truly believed it was going to happen and I must have sounded pretty convincing because my sister took a year off college to try acting too. And then of course, at the end of the year, her sister went back to college. By the end of the year, however, she had gotten a role on Beverly Hills and a 210. She was in the Ben Stiller show and Seinfeld. And she said, it was a change of mindset, a subtle yet real transformation that was essential if I wanted to genuinely morph from wanting to act to actually being an actress. This is true of anyone. No matter what you do, at some point, you must ask yourself if you belong. Not only if you fit in, but if what you're doing feels right. In my case, it was being on the set and working with the actors. And I don't know, she doesn't really ever finish this thought, but she's like, I decided I belonged. And so it was different now. Beautiful. So eventually she leaves her agent to go with a junior agent named Chuck James, who she is just, she's like, he looked ambitious and I liked that about him. And he gives her all these great tips, like have a good attitude on set. He said, it's also about the relationships and your reputation, not just about your acting talent. So you have to be like easy to work with. And she was like, oh my God, yes. So in addition to talent and looks, I wanted to be known as someone who was well-liked, easy to work with and professional. And I tried on all accounts. So then she gets a job on an Aaron Spelling pilot, which she really thinks is going to go to series. Wait, well, first she stars in a movie called Tammy and the T-Rex with Paul Walker. Oh, yeah. Tell me if you've seen that. Please, I need to know. Then she gets an Aaron Spelling pilot, which she's so excited about. It didn't go to series, it looks like, but working with Aaron Spelling was a really important opportunity for her. She learned a lot because she said, Mr. Spelling was at every appointment for fittings, offering opinions or quietly nodding his approval as he puffed his pipe. His hands-on involvement made a lasting impression on me. And I'd think about him again years later when I did my reality show and later still when I lent my name to hair products and perfume. If it had my name on it, I had to be involved in as many decisions as possible. That's exactly what the takeaway from working with Aaron Spelling should be. So she was all excited and of course it didn't work and she just talks about how the ups and downs of acting, there's so many things that you think are going to change your life and then with one call it's all canceled. So then we have a section called what does it mean to get naked and this is where she discusses nudity in film because as we know she's been naked a little bit but not as much as you'd think. So she talks about how one of her first big auditions was for Showgirls which was this huge movie that was like poised to be the movie of the year and she didn't get the role it went to this woman named Elizabeth Berkeley I think this woman named she's very famous no she's not she was when in the 90s when she was in this yeah and then this tanked her career yeah I would bet that a lot of people listening do not know who Elizabeth Berkeley is whoa I mean the last time she was on TV was in like the mid 90s and then she never came back that's not true what has she been in I mean I'm not like following her career actively 
Well, okay. So Elizabeth Berkeley, who was Jesse and Saved by the Bell, was in Showgirls, which, if you guys have seen it, is a cult classic, which means it's not good. <laughs> anyway, it did like tank her career. I highly recommend you Google the pool sex scene from Showgirls. It is the best sex scene that's ever been written <laughs> or acted in. So anyway, she was prepared to get naked for this film because she thought the role called for it and it was a really big deal to her whether or not to get naked. And she was like, I would have done it for this movie. I didn't get it. And she goes, looking back, Elizabeth Berkley ended up being way more vulnerable when she had to go to the press for this movie that was being just absolutely dogged and yeah. like ripped apart by the critics. That is more vulnerable than a pair of boobs. And that's kind of her mentality. Like what yeah. is truly being naked in front of people? And she says, it depends. Yeah, her final conclusion is, what does it mean to get naked? It depends. Like I said, a genius. So then she's in a Paul Verhoeven movie who is the director that directed Basic Instinct with Sharon Stone. From what we've read about him, he's not like super open to not including a woman's body, but he does ask her if she would be comfortable doing a topless scene. It wasn't originally in the script and she says no. Halfway through the filming, he's like, hey, I wrote this sex scene where your boobs show. Is that cool? Totally up to you. And she says no, unsure of what would happen. And luckily, she's like, he was totally cool about it. She says like four times that he didn't pressure her. So that means he didn't. So then she gets the opportunity to do Wild Things, which is not a movie I've seen, but the plot sounds insane. It's just basically about hot teenage girls having a threesome with their hot teacher. She was in it with Neve Campbell, who was very famous at the time. So she had a no nudity clause in her contract. And Denise was like, well, I was the new girl. So I knew I needed to show, show tits. <laughs> there is definitely nudity in this movie and steamy, steamy sex scenes. But she felt like that's what the movie was about. She says she really thought about it a ton and decided it. The nudity was part of the character. It wasn't her, so she could do it. Also, this movie was shot and filmed before Starship Troopers had come out. So when Starship Troopers came out, it was a number one film. So she did become a household name, but this was before she had all that notoriety. So she felt she had to go along with what they asked. Yeah, and when this movie came out, she became like a household name sex symbol. She became known. Yeah, but while she was on the set... Teresa Russell, who played my mom in the movie, sat me down and advised me to, quote, be a bitch if necessary. In other words, if I felt I was being taken advantage of, I could say no. And according to her, should not hesitate to say it whenever my inner alarm went off. Denise responds, really? I said, I can? You have to, she said. You need to take care of yourself. And I think that that was very helpful for her. Yeah. Because she always talks about like negotiating things with her agent and discussing whether or not a role was right for her. And I feel like he was always like, yeah, any role is right for you. Just take any role. It's very funny the way that she like feels the need to be like, I am just like you. The way that she's like, I'm not just like flashing my boobs out. I think about it long and hard. She's like in that scene where you can see my butt, I practiced standing in a very crazy way so that my butt looked good. She says, yes, it really was my butt. But to get it looked that way, I was standing like a jackass. I feel like she really needs to be like, listen, anyone's butt can look like this. And it's like, that's literally not true, Denise, but I appreciate you. <laughs> she also says that when her and Neve did the kissing scene in the pool, John, the director, was on edge too. In fact, at his suggestion, Neve and I went into her trailer and shared a picture of margaritas before we did the scene. Neither of us had ever kissed another girl. We shrugged, clinked glasses, and went for it on screen. Everyone has a first time. I cannot believe they were drunk for that. I don't think you should be drunk making out in a pool on a camera. I think you got to do what you got to do. I don't think that like as a director, you should suggest it. No, I don't either. I can't imagine being like, you look a little tight and uncomfortable. Have you thought about getting drunk? (laughs) Losing all inhibitions? 
It's also like bad directing to be like, listen, I don't think that my words could get you in the right place for this scene, but I do think I could inebriate you into yeah. it. Wild Things premieres and it's red hot. I had two studio movies in theaters that people actually went to see and I wanted to continue working. To this day, with every part I've had, I always think I'm going to get fired. And after every job, I always think I'm going to never work again. I am always focused on what's next. And then she says that being called a sex symbol was very bizarre for her. She said, it's a wonderful compliment, but I have been raised to know that if I wanted to feel beautiful and sexy, it had to be because of how I felt on the inside, not from anything I could buy or wear. I still remember being called fish lips and Bucky Beaver. It's all about keeping perspective. And she goes on to be like, listen, I love getting my hair and makeup done. It is so fun. And wearing beautiful dresses is so fun. But at the end of the day, it all comes off and you're just watching TV and eating ice cream like everybody else. Just like everybody else. She also, can I say, does talk about like not believing your own hype too hard. And I think that she is very down to earth about it. She says how hard it is to come to the realization that like that glamorous made up version of you is not always like you can also just like go leave your house. You don't have to like constantly keep that face on because that's the press version of you. And it's like, wow, that's true. She also says that her accountant wanted her to buy a house, but she was so worried of buying a house that she couldn't afford the mortgage on because she didn't get another job. She knew that fame could be fleeting. And I will say, I wonder how long she would have stuck around if it hadn't been for Charlie Sheen, to be honest. She does seem like she works really hard. Yeah. But I do think that kept her very relevant. Yeah, but then there's also a version of it where it could have potentially like hurt her career because then- No, I mean, I definitely think it did, but I also do think in the long run, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess there's no way of knowing. But I think an, an Elizabeth Brinkley, a Neve Campbell- Brinkley. Christy Brinkley. There's Elizabeth Burke Brinkley. Yeah, you, maybe you're right. Because I remember being like, isn't that the beautiful wo- British woman? No, that's Christy Brinkley. No, that's some. Oh. Oh. I was thinking Elizabeth Hurley. Oh, Elizabeth Hurley. Yeah, Elizabeth Berkeley. <laughs> Elizabeth Hurley. Christy, Christy Brinkley. Brinkley. And then Kirsty Alley. <laughs> yes. Great. <laughs> So then she gets James Bond and she gets cast as Dr. Christmas Jones, a nuclear physicist. And it's a really intense shoot. It's six months in London. They start shooting in January. They shoot for six months and the movie comes out in November and that entire time she's doing press. So I do think this is a rare gig where it's like a full-time job for a year and it's all encompassing. And she's doing this massive press tour for it. And when it comes out, she is absolutely dragged through the mud. People hate her performance. I didn't read any of the reviews in the movie. It seems like a lot of the quotes she included are more about like the character itself. I don't know if her acting was so bad or if, I mean, I'm sure it was, but they were like, why would a nuclear physicist be wearing such sexy outfits? I'm like, because it's a James Bond movie. These aren't real idiots. (laughs) She's not really a nuclear physicist. She's a hot girl. (laughs) God, I love her so much. This is such a funny quote to me. She talks about how she had been told not to read the reviews while doing the press in case this exact thing happened because she's like, it was so humiliating going in and doing reviews, knowing that everybody hated my work. And she said, I was embarrassed doing my interviews, feeling as if every journalist were making fun of my performance. Whether or not it was true, it was how I felt. For the record, years later, Entertainment Weekly named me the worst Bond girl. So I was right. Some <laughs> were making fun of my performance, but hey, I was a Bond girl. The European tour more than compensated for the criticism. She's like, I got a lot of money. They gave me this gorgeous bracelet that I gave back to my mom. And she's like, it's all worth it when I could buy my parents a home and my dad a new truck. That's like the attitude you have to have is it's funny to be like, I really felt like everyone hated me. And it turns out they did. They did. (laughs) But who cares? I had a really good time. So then she buys a house and a dog, a Tuscan style house in the Pacific Palisades. Beautiful. I can imagine exactly what it looks like. And oh God, I love it. Age well. Okay. That's exactly what I want. I want yellow walls. 
<laughs> she shoots a couple more movies and then she does a guest starring role on a little TV show called Spin City, starring one Charlie Sheen. She said right away the chemistry was undeniable. As we said goodbye at the end of the second episode, Charlie suggested we get together outside the show. When I said that would be nice, he promised to call. And a couple of days later, he did. So he invites her out to dinner and then calls her back and is like, I just realized I can't get dinner because my favorite team is playing in the World Series. I don't even know if it was a team he liked. He just wanted to watch the World Series. Yeah, he just says Charlie called to tell me the World Series was on. He was an obsessive baseball fan and was in a bit of a dilemma. He wanted to go out to dinner, but didn't want to miss watching the game. I understood. I didn't want him to miss the game either. From working with Charlie on the movie and two episodes of Spin City, I knew he was a little superstitious and I would have felt terrible if he missed like, an important game because he was out with me. I mean, it doesn't seem like that was an option. I think it was like we either watch the game at my house or we hang out a different night. I like think she's making up that them hanging out and him missing the game was one of the three choices. But she says, oh, that's totally fine. And he's like, really? Seriously? Are you sure? And she's like, yeah, I get it. And I will say, I feel like that's a me thing. I'm not, I know a lot of women out there will be like, if he changes a date, red flag, and maybe I'm wrong. But God, in this situation, it was a red flag. Oh yeah. I mean, I change stuff around all the time just because things are unpredictable. But I do feel like if someone's like, listen, I can't hang out because baseball is on. I'd be like, all right, well, what is this fever pitch? (laughs) No, thank you. Specifically with Charlie Sheen and specifically with Denise Richards, who seems to be accommodating to a fault. So she goes over, they watch TV, his team wins, and at the end of the night, she leans in to kiss him. It was spectacular, definitely butterflies. Then I went home. By the way, the game was great, and his team won. Few things are as exciting as meeting someone you like. That's like the truest line I've ever fucking read. Getting a new crush, what's better than that? And then she's like, on our next date, he drove all the way to my house to pick me up and take me out to dinner. We had this incredible dinner where we talked the whole time. And then she says he made no attempt to avoid his issues with his three years of sobriety, which had been, as he noted, chronicled in the press. I had no experience with addiction, and in hindsight, I was quite ignorant about it. But I admired his strength in getting sober, his determination to stay sober, and the effort he made to work on himself. Getting through all of that and being so humble about it impressed me. Oh, God, no. I think they spend some holidays together and then he goes on Ryan Seacrest's radio show and says that he's dating Denise Richards and so it's out there and then he calls her to be like hey I said that you're my girlfriend publicly and she's like oh my god that's so romantic not oh you blew up our personal lives whether or not I was ready like she was ready she was excited about it but that is a gamble I think they met in October and then they go on a trip and he's planning on proposing to her New Year's Eve. But the minute they get there, he goes, I can't wait another minute. Will you marry me? God, I couldn't picture a more romantic moment. Of course I said yes. I was going to wait until midnight on New Year's, he said, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't hold out. I'm glad you didn't, I said. So she sees this as romantic and not impulse issues. In January, he was nominated for a Golden Globe and they go together and she's just so happy and they're on the carpet and everything. Can I say, I also, like I'm saying this all obviously with hindsight in my pocket, but I I don't think she like should have necessarily read into these as problems, but I also like reading it now, you're like, okay, a lot of these events could have meant one of two things and you took the happy one. Well, I always say this with celebrities that get married so quickly. You know, you could just keep dating. Yeah. I really do think celebrities lose the part of your brain that lets you know if you really love somebody, you could continue to just not break up. Yeah. I think they have this idea that if they don't get married, it has to be over. But you could also just keep dating. So they don't just keep dating. They get married by that summer. So they were together eight months from the first date to the day they got married. Yeah. She turned 30 that February. In June, they get married. Armani. Who? 
Giorgio Armani. She says that as soon as they were publicly engaged, a bunch of designers wanted to design her wedding dress. And she's like, I just wanted Armani to do it. And so I asked our wedding planner if she would ask him. And to my surprise, he said yes. And it's like, why are you surprised? You guys are one of the most famous couples of the moment. She's so cute. She really cannot believe her luck. She also talks about how people are kind of giving her credit for making Charlie Sheen good. She says, to the press, our relationship was a great story. Charlie was the comeback kid, and with me on his arm and a diamond ring on my finger, it looked like the classic case of the good girl reforming the bad boy, except that wasn't the case. I didn't have to reform Charlie. He was already reformed. As I said, his past was his past, and I wasn't judging him for it. I don't think you have to judge someone for their past, but I do think knowing them for more than part of a year is what it takes to know like who they are. I don't know. No, exactly. I think a lot of these celebrity relationships that divorce within three or four years, it's like, yeah, that's exactly the amount of time most people take to get to know each other before they can see if they get married or not. We'll get into it, but they get married and she says that first year of marriage is the greatest year of their whole relationship. And she's like, everyone said the first year of marriage can be the hardest. And I thought if this is the hardest year, we're gonna have the easiest marriage of all time. And it's like, well, that wasn't really the first year of marriage. That was the first year of dating. That was still in the honeymoon phase. Yeah, I do think you can't judge someone for their past, but you can judge them for their present. And in order to fully know their present, you have to have known them for longer than like a minute. Around this time, he also got picked up for Two and a Half Men. Well, she says the first road bump, the first time things were kind of bad is when Spin City got canceled. So Spin City gets canceled. She says she saw a side of him that she didn't necessarily, she wasn't obsessed with. He was very upset about it, but she comforted him. And then a couple months later, he gets Two and a Half Men, which is about to be a smashing success. The only red flags in her mind that she outlines in this book were the fact that his house was disaster proof. He had like a fireman pole from the inside of his closet to downstairs in case he needed to make a quick escape. Mm-hmm. He had a bulletproof bedroom door and the house was just like all black. It was like a very intense bunker of a home. They moved into his bachelor pad and she sold her house, which I thought was very bizarre. Yeah. And then the other red flag is that without telling her, he showed up one day when they were engaged with her name tattooed on him. She thought it was so romantic. (laughs) She also says that they moved into his house because they needed to save up money so that they can move into a home. I know hearing me say that we had to save might sound strange, but we were like anyone else. We had to watch our pennies and put our money in the bank if we wanted to move into a home that could be ours. You literally just moved out of a home that was yours. Yeah. I don't understand how he had a condo and you had a house and somehow you guys couldn't get a house. There was already a house to one of your names. Anyway, so a year into the relationship, she gets pregnant with her first daughter. This is a really interesting line. She says, how did Charlie feel about becoming a daddy again? Of the two of us, I was the more spontaneous, the one who didn't always plan every hour of the day, the one who could roll with the punches. Charlie balanced me. He was the voice of reason, the schedule maker, and the one who had everything in order. That's not really an answer. She does say eventually that he came around. Also, he has a 16-year-old daughter at this point. I just think it's very interesting to be like, he was the level-headed schedule maker with everything laid out and ready to go. Charlie Sheen, the voice of reason. (laughs) So she gets pregnant and she says the hardest part was the morning sickness because she has a fear of puking. Yeah, so she mind over mattered it and just didn't puke. <laughs> when I was hit with the weight of, of nausea, I'd say, bitch, get a hold of yourself. It's just in your head. I also ate tons of lemon popsicles after hearing that lemon calmed an upset stomach. I heard about the same about ginger candy, and despite burning the hell out of my throat, I popped them into my mouth like vitamins. I also had crackers and soda next to my bed at all times. But really saying, bitch, get a hold of yourself was most effective. 
It is literally not in your head. It is like actually a physical response. I also want to point out, this is one of the first times she is obsessed with Twitter. She talks about how being pregnant when she was pregnant was hard because Twitter didn't exist yet. And she says, these days my life is a running conversation on Twitter. I share details about my day or post questions about the issues I'm dealing with to my 2 million followers and they respond similarly. I like the give and take. She loves the connection she has in the acknowledgments she thinks her Twitter followers. She's obsessed with Twitter. I love that about her. Oh, wait, can I say one more thing about her, her fear of throwing up? Yeah. The way she talks about phobia and like childhood trauma. And like, this isn't obviously a trauma, but it is something that traumatized her. And it's why she's afraid of throwing up. I guess one time she saw her dad throw up when she was really little and it scared her so much because she thought her dad was dying. And she says, it pisses me off that something I don't even remember has had such an impact on me. That pisses me off for you, Denise. I hate that that happened. But then while she's pregnant, she gets the news that her mom has cancer. Yes, and this is obviously heartbreaking. She's very close with her parents and she's shooting a movie. She's trying to visit her mom as much as she can. She's going back and forth between shooting the film and watching her mom. And luckily her mom does recover. She goes into remission. Also, Charlie is shooting the first season of Two and a Half Men, so he is busy and they start having some fights. She says, I finished the movie. We got past my mom's first surgery and then the holidays came and went. Christmas was spent with my parents during the day and Charlie's in the evening. We did a lot of driving and those hours spent on the road might have been symbolic as we hit a couple bumpy roads in our relationship during those months. There were little things that I assume every couple goes through. I chalked it up to stress and sensitivity. I was worried about my mom. Charlie was distracted with his new show. I was pregnant. We were getting ready to be new parents. It was an exciting time, but one filled with changes and challenges. Stuff like this, I'm like, Denise, what were the fights? How bad were they? What were the changes and challenges? When you say, I thought other people were going through them, did they? Like, what is the new consensus? Are other people going through similar things or is Charlie an absolute psychopath? I mean, she's just so accommodating. She will literally, we talked about this. We don't understand how she got this way, but she is like the people pleaseriest of the people pleasers. Even at the end of this book, after everything she's been through with Charlie, I, I don't know if there's a trauma missing. I feel like there's not. My theory might be that she was so beautiful growing up that she was always kind like of told to feel... being pretty? Well, I think she was always told to feel like guilty, like especially as she has a sister who's not as pretty as her. I wonder if she was always made to feel like apologetic. She says that she really likes feminine names like Lily and Stella. And Charlie wants to name the baby Sam, not Samantha just Sam. And she agrees to it, even though she does not like that. And when she and Charlie break up the rest of the book, she calls the baby Sammy, not Sam. To chronicle the advancing stages of my pregnancy, we took photos of my belly from the side. The progress was unmistakable. How cute. Have you ever heard of that? That's a good idea. They found out she was going to need a C-section. The C-section was scheduled for March 10th. And Charlie got her some gift. She doesn't even really say what it is, but on the gift was engraved March 10th. March 9th, she goes for her final checkup and she says, it didn't occur to me to tell the doctor that I was feeling weird. And then all day she started having terrible stomach pains. And it wasn't until the evening when the pains were getting stronger and faster that they were not just pains, they were contractions. And so Charlie calls the hospital and they're like, well, you need to get here right now. Wait, can I say, she says, a part of me thought that maybe it was all in my head and I wasn't really in labor. Chalk it up to irrationality. The hospital's like, well, you need to get her right here right now. She could be going into labor. And instead she goes and takes a shower, washes her hair. And then I had to sit on the floor while I blew my hair dry. I was in such pain. The dog stared at me with concern. I can't believe I thought I could make it through the night. I guess I desperately wanted to make sure Sam was born on the 10th and Charlie's gift was engraved with the real date. I mean, that is like an insane consideration to be like, I just don't want Charlie's gift to be wrong. I wish that I could go to the past and say, Charlie is about to be 
rich beyond belief and he can get you a new gift. I don't think to this day she sees how much she catered to him. That is walking on eggshells behavior. I still don't think she sees fully how like almost abusive this relationship is. If that is something that you think you need to do to keep your partner happy, hold in your baby so that their gift has the right date, I would go on a ledge and call that abusive. I think I would join you on the ledge. (laughs) Anyway, so they have Sam. They named the baby Sam J. Sheen. That's the letter J dot. Her middle initial stands for both of our moms, Joni and Janet. Her middle initial does not stand for a word. Her name is Sam J. Sheen. That's a bad name. It's not a good name. She also says in one of my most vivid and happiest memories, Charlie intercepted her as the doctor handed her off to the nurse to show his parents who were waiting outside. It was too soon. She wasn't even properly cleaned, weighed and swaddled, but he was so excited and proud of his little princess as he called her. I mean, that is erratic behavior. I just feel like every sweet story she tells is like a story where I'm like, I don't know, man. I feel like he should be aware that this is a birth and things are more important than his immediate wants. I understand that he, um, it's great that he loves the baby and is proud of the baby. But is there no part of him that's like, what is protocol? What is safe for the baby? What is safe for the mother? No. So then she says yes to Playboy, who'd been asking her for years. It's important to her that women feel like they can be sexy after having a baby. She gives the classic, my body made a person, and then I fed that person also with my body. I should celebrate my body. Yes. And she says she hadn't gotten back down to her pre-baby weight, but she was like, whatever, I fucking had a baby, so to mm-hmm. deal with it. She also goes on to say, although Charlie doted on Sam, which I adored seeing, I hated that the two of us continued to encounter bumps in our relationship. We started experiencing these bumps more frequently and I wasn't sure why. I think a lot of women can relate to how when things aren't right, quite right in your relationship, you blame yourself. It can affect your self-esteem and that's exactly what happened to me. A progression of incidents, which I won't go into detail on, started to make me feel vulnerable and confused. I really wish she had gone into detail. So then after Playboy, she goes to film a movie because her agent tells her and she says she needed to get right back to work because she didn't have the type of career where she could take time off and that her and her agent had agreed on it. So three months after the baby, she does Playboy and then goes straight to filming a movie. And she brings like a playpen to the movie set and she's just like putting her baby on the side next to the director. And then eventually, after a couple of weeks, she's like, I think we should have a nanny. (laughs) She's like, I think I might need somebody to help me watch this baby while I do a full-time job. She's like, Charlie would come up when he had time off, but that wasn't enough. And I was like, of course that wasn't enough. I love this line where she's talking about making commitments. She says, that's me in a nutshell. A girl who keeps her word, stays focused, and tries hard. That really is her in a nutshell. So then very quickly, she gets pregnant again. I was surprised at how easily I got pregnant again. I know if you don't use birth control, chances are you'll get pregnant. But at the time, quite a few of my girlfriends were trying for their second baby and having a difficult time getting pregnant. Charlie was excited about baby number two. Both of us were, but I was nervous again about throwing up. But I employed the same mind over nausea tactics I did the first time around. I love that throwing up is one of the worst things that can happen to her. Every time something horrible is happening, she's like, as long as I don't throw up, it's actually going to be fine. Anyway, so after she gets pregnant for the second time, shortly after our marriage changed drastically, it came out of the blue and it was more than a rough patch. These issues are so personal that I don't want to divulge exactly what changes. And if you've ever been through a similar situation, you know that the details don't matter. The fact is our marriage was crumbling and fast. I cannot tell you if I've been in a similar situation because you won't tell me the situation. Yeah, please tell me. I actually am deeply curious as to what the specifics of your situation were though. That is why I literally bought the book. (laughs) I do feel like for her to be like, it came out of the blue after the previous 20 pages where she's like, slowly but surely our relationship was getting rockier. (laughs) We were doing really bad for about a year. And then out of the blue, we were doing really, really bad. (laughs) It's also funny to be like, a big thing about me is I never hold someone's past against them. Anyway, things are constantly happening to me out of the blue. (laughs) 
It wouldn't be out of the blue if you considered yesterday. <laughs> I cannot believe this man who has struggled with a drug addiction his whole life suddenly was addicted to drugs again. So they are very stressed. Nobody knows she's pregnant. She's trying to keep it hidden that she's pregnant and that they're struggling because it's the first trimester. And she says her stress is so out of control that she's worried she's going to lose the baby and that she starts having panic attacks about it. It all kind of comes apart. The Screen Actors Guild Award in February was another hard evening, but for different reasons. I was now five months pregnant and not feeling like myself. She wasn't able to fit into her dress and she didn't think she could go. And she goes, I didn't want to go, but I feared the press would speculate we were having problems if I wasn't with Charlie. In hindsight, we simply could have just said I wasn't feeling well. Yeah, of course you could. Like when you're pregnant, you're allowed to tell people. But I do think she had this fear of how the press would respond. So she tried to keep it hidden. I mean, to be fair, it seems like her fear of the press was deeply founded. The photos of us on the red carpet that night were the last pictures taken of us at a public event together. A short time later, Charlie and I split up. Those photos of us ran everywhere. So they break up. It's getting worse and worse. And she's trying not to tell anybody. She's confiding a little bit in her parents. As I said earlier, only my parents knew and they were extremely concerned and worried. But out of respect, they tried not to cross the line too much. When they did, I got defensive and pushed them away. She was like, it was difficult because he was my husband. She didn't want to get a divorce. She didn't grow up in a divorce. Charlie's parents are not divorced. She said to her mom, I'd like to try to make it. But then finally she reached out to a therapist and she says in therapy, she starts just hearing the things she's saying out loud and realizing that it it can't go on any further. It happened after a night that will remain in my mind forever. If for no other reason than I realized it was the end. But it seems like there was probably another reason. Yeah, she goes... There were other reasons. Oh, <laughs> was yeah, the next okay. sentence. <laughs> so I was right. <laughs> but they paled in comparison to the tremors that rattled my whole being as I saw that I had run out of alternatives and excuses. Everything exploded that night. I ended up sleeping in Sam's room, though I can't say I slept. I lay in the twin bed opposite her crib and stared into the darkness. I had never felt more alone and scared in my life. My face was drenched from tears. I replayed the argument I'd had with Charlie. I heard advice my parents had given me. I'd heard statements I'd made myself. Finally, as the first slivers of dawn broke through the night, I found myself looking at my daughter sleeping in her crib and I asked, if this were Sammy, what would you tell her to do? Six months pregnant and with a one-year-old. They pack up and leave in secret when Charlie leaves for work. Yeah, she takes the housekeeper with them and they move into the Beverly Hills Hotel. And from there, she calls a divorce lawyer and goes straight to the courts to sign for divorce. The divorce papers hit the news cycle before they had even been delivered to Charlie. Which she really calls out as a deeply fucked up system. And I gotta say, I agree. (laughs) She says, believe it or not, I went to a table reading for my new pilot. Several people asked, why didn't I drop out of the project and deal with my life? I had a simple answer. Only a few people have the luxury of pulling over to the side to focus solely on one issue at a time. I wasn't one of them. Stuff happens every day to people and they still have to work. Then they still throw Sammy her first birthday party. And she's like, I guess I could have postponed it because a one-year-old isn't gonna remember their birthday party. But I like didn't feel like that was an option. I mean, it wasn't just the problems with them, it was the press that was hounding them. Yeah. I don't think she foresaw what a big deal it would be to the press when they got a divorce. She says, I never claim to be anything more than a work in progress. That's the best advice I can offer. You must think of yourself and your life as a work in progress. For me, the next three months were exactly that, work. And often I wondered whether I would call any of it progress. Then she has Lola... I shared the news with Charlie. Obviously, this pregnancy was a different experience from the first one, but I tried not to dwell on the negative. I kept moving forward. A baby is a blessing. 
So they have the baby. And at first, it seems like things are going to be amicable. They're trying to spend Father's Day with him. They have at least a Sunday dinner or a brunch every week together so that the kids can know their father. And then he tries to get back together with her. And she agrees to go on a little trip with him. Yeah, all summer, he's like coming over and playing with the kids. And he's like, let's give this a chance. So they spend a few days in the Caribbean alone to see if they can work it. Yeah, but she says, deep down, I knew it wasn't going to work out. But I wanted to make sure we had done everything we could to make our family work. I didn't want any regrets. But on their trip in the Caribbean, she said deep, dark revelations came to light and rocked me to my core. I knew it was the best for my family for me to get out for good. What were the revelations? Like, what, what was I have different? to know what rocked you to your core because I want to be honest. As much as I love you, my dear friend Denise, I don't <laughs> my think... My sister. I don't think every woman can relate and I don't think all breakup revelations are the same. I also do kind of feel like, okay, so you knew about his past, but you had forgiven it. Then things were rocky for about a year. Then out of the blue, they got bad. And then you try to reconcile and something new came out to shake you to your core. I do wonder if she has like can't learn disease. Like what shook you to your core? The day that you literally packed your bags and escaped while he was at work and took the housekeeper with you because you didn't think she was safe and filed for divorce that day because you couldn't take it another minute because you were scared. What was left to shock you? Like, why are you unable to see things coming? I just, I love you so much. I am just so confused why you don't. Literally, Denise, all we want is the best for you. (laughs) And you need to put your guard up. You need to assume the worst. Charlie has given you no reason to trust him. You have to stop trusting that you've hit a rock bottom with well, him. Well, that takes us back to the pre-intro. 25 things you may want to know about me Number right 14, now. what would I change about myself to be less trusting? I feel like you can change that. I just at least, I feel like she needs to have a friend with a checklist and be like, by the way, you're going to hang out with Charlie Sheen. Here are some things that could happen. I guess, you know, I'm wrong because she says... I didn't and still don't regret seeing if we could rekindle our marriage. It was too important not to try and I would have always wondered if we hadn't made the effort. So you have can't learn disease because you keep on not trusting Denise and you need to learn to. <laughs> Little did I know how much more would come. So speaking of knowing what's coming next, you can take action today for a healthier tomorrow with Everlywell. Their at-home lab tests and vitamins and supplements can help you get the knowledge and support you need so that you can become a healthier you. Get ahead of it because when you know more, you can do more. What if you could use science to discover more about your body instead of just thinking? I'm in it for the science, baby. I love an experiment. And more than an experiment, I love the truth. Why take a hypothesis when you could have an answer? Everlywell is digital healthcare designed for you at an affordable and transparent price. We all know that healthcare is all over the place. So understanding what you're looking to test, how much it's going to cost, and then to have those results ready for you in your app is truly a dream come true. There are over 30 at-home lab tests. You can choose the tests that make the most sense for you and you will get the answers you need. Everlywell also sells high quality vitamins and supplements to support your overall health. So once you get those tests, once you have your answers, you've got the solution right there. For listeners of this show, Everlywell is offering a special discount of 20% off at-home lab tests at everlywell.com slash worm. That's everlywell.com slash worm for 20% off your next at-home lab test. That's everlywell.com slash worm. If you're getting ready to make a big old purchase, Credit Karma is there to help. Don't put off those big purchases, those big expenses, like a car, a medical bill, things like that. You don't have to be anxious about it because with Credit Karma, you can consolidate 
big expenses onto one loan and then you only have one payment to make. So you don't have to worry about hitting different credit cards at different deadlines in different places. You can just consolidate it all, get one loan for you with Credit Karma. They'll help you find the loan that is best for you, best for your situation, and they'll tell you which ones you have the best chance of getting approved for so that you can apply with confidence. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find the loan offers personalized to you and When you compare offers with Credit Karma, it is completely free and it doesn't even affect your credit score. So when you apply with Credit Karma, you can apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. Man, I bet you Denise Richards wishes that she had used Credit Karma to consolidate this divorce situation. It's about to get messy. So she is really covering the hits of her biggest press explosions, I would say. She started dating Richie Sambora, who she met at one dinner with Charlie Sheen before that. Or I, I think she'd only run into him once ever. Well, she says that. And then later she's like, we had met a few times. Okay. But she says when she had met Richie Sambora, he had been married to Heather Locklear. He was friends with Charlie Sheen. She was very in love with Charlie Sheen, which I believe 100%. And she's like... I didn't feel anything towards him when I was married because I was in love and happy and not looking. But then she runs into him at a grocery store when she's going through her divorce. March 2006, they run into each other. Yes, and he's also going through a divorce, but the press doesn't know that yet. And so then in order to explain that she did not steal Heather Locklear's husband, she stole Heather Locklear's ex, she goes through her entire relationship history to prove that she isn't... A homewrecker. A homewrecker or a serial dater or somebody that would steal a girl's boyfriend. And none of it's that interesting. She had a high school boyfriend who cheated on her when she was in Japan. She dated this guy who was an actor on and off for years because he was hot. I did not break up a marriage. It was already over. I do want to say this thing that she talks about when she had a crush on this guy, Pat, who she ended up dating on and off for years. They didn't get together for like six months. And the reason is because she had a friend who was really into the rules, which was, I guess, huge in the 90s. It was like a huge in the 90s. It's huge today. Do you know how many like dating advice people are still like, here are the rules. Never boink on a first date. Never boink on a second date. Never boink on the 10th date. But you can boink on dates three through nine. (laughs) (laughs) So her friend convinced her that she needed to adhere to the rules. And so she liked him. He liked her. And they never got to go out because he didn't invite me out. But because he didn't ask me out on Wednesday for Saturday night, my girlfriend insisted I had to say I was busy. On Saturday, of course, I was home alone wondering why I'd said I was busy. She also said that I could only call him back after he called three times. But by the time I called him back, I was into that whole Wednesday-Saturday cycle. Seeing I was frustrated and I wonder why, she suggested I take a sexy dress to the set and get ready after we wrap so Pat would see me leave all dressed up and think I had a hot date. I thought it was crazy, but I did it. Then he went on some dates because he thought she was dating someone and she got really upset. And so finally they just like talked it out and realized they both liked each other and the whole game was stupid. And she's like, since then I'll never play by any rules. I'll just be transparent and tell people who I like and do it my way. And that is how I feel. I feel that That way. That's how I feel. I feel if you're playing by rules, then who are they going to fall in love with? Some textbook version of you? Yeah, I think that if you are the type of person who triple texts, then you want someone who loves the type of person who triple texts. Also, I just think it's a lot easier to enter into a relationship where the grounding is I like you and you like me. So let's see where this can go as opposed to being like, I like you and you've pretended that you hate me in order to get, I don't want to be with somebody who likes what they think they can't have. Yeah. Because that probably sets you up to be with somebody who's not going to be interested in you once they capture you. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair. Anyway, her and Richie have a 
she talks about how their romance was very important at the time. It does seem like overall it didn't have that much of an impact on her greater life story, but to have someone to lean on during this time when she's going through this horrible divorce and her mom is sick, his dad is also sick. So their lives are actually quite similar at the time because he's going through a horrible divorce too. And to clarify, yes, I was friendly with his ex, but only for a brief time. And my friendship with her ended prior to anything that happened between me and Richie. That's the truth. I did not break up a marriage. It was already over. Had she and I still be friends, I never even would have crossed that line with him ever. Right. So I do think that this chapter truly exists just to tackle the headline that she stole Heather Locklear's husband. Because they had kept their relationship secret for a very long time, as long as they could. They were using code names. They were sneaking in and out of an SUV. But at one point, photos were leaked because these photographers had staked out half like a quarter mile into the ocean, taking photos of him at his beach house with her. And when it leaked, the headlines were Denise Richards is an evil homewrecker. She said everybody turned on her. Yeah. And so this is like while she's going through this horrible divorce with Charlie Sheen, where he's painting her as like a psycho vindictive gold digger. Yeah. So now she's like a gold digging homewrecker. She said, until then, I'd always been presented in a positive light as a nice person, the good girl, if you will. Even coverage of my divorce painted me in an empathetic light, but that changed in a day, literally overnight. Suddenly, I was a homewrecker and a husband stealer, Hollywood's latest villainess. Few knew the truth, but that didn't seem to matter. So things with Charlie have also gone off the rails. For the first bit of their breakup, their relationship was fairly cordial. I mean, Denise would send over gifts for Charlie's new girlfriend. She felt like, well, if this is a girl that's going to be around my children, I want my children to be surrounded by love. I don't want them to feel like they have to pick and choose. Right. But then things went off the rails. Once again, we don't get any details as to how or why. I don't know if there was like an instigating event or if he just decided to not like her because he does seem wildly unstable. But she says, I kept inviting Charlie for dinner and he came. If we had a conflict, I told him to put our shit aside and turn that frown upside down and whistle Dixie out your ass if you have to. I don't care if you hate me, but fake it in front of the kids. Despite those efforts, our divorce turned hostile. Then it got worse. It got toxic. Charlie and I have extremely different views about the way children should be raised and the kind of environment that's healthy for them. I wanted my girls to have a great relationship with their dad, but during times that I didn't think were appropriate for two young impressionable girls, it was my job as their mom to be protective. He disagreed. So she says it's public knowledge that I filed for a restraining order, but what's not known is that the two previous times I tried to handle things privately. She says by spring 2006, things hadn't changed and it had gotten so bad that I couldn't take it anymore and I filed with the court. That was a very scary time for me because when you file with the court, those records are public. Yes. So she's going through this now extremely messy divorce. Her mom is sick again and she's now a homewrecker. Yeah, she talks about Richie. They loved each other a lot. I think it was good for them to be together. Her cancer comes back, and this time there's much less hope. Her mom is not as optimistic, and there's a real sense that this is going to be worse than the last time. And Richie's dad also has cancer, so they were able to lean on each other. They were both going through a divorce publicly. His dad then passes away, and she calls the mom's doctor and finds out that her mom's real prognosis is about six months. I don't regret my relationship with him. I learned hard lessons from our journey together. My heart may have been bruised, but it was pure. Richie is a wonderful man. He came into my life when I needed him and he needed me. We'll always have that bond. So then she gets into her last few months with her mom. She says after her cancer returned, she put on a brave face despite fearing what lay ahead. In that alone, she presented a powerful and lasting lesson that I return to daily. Facing the worst, my mom showed me how to be my best. As you can tell, I'm a big proponent of living in the moment to not focus so much on the past and to try to not worry about the future. We never knew what was going to happen or what kind of cards were always going to be dealt. I learned to truly enjoy the simplest things in life. She said, my approach is to deal and move on, to enjoy every moment. I know it's basic pop psychology, but it works for me. 
So her mom is going through treatment and comforting her through Charlie, dragging her through the damn mud. She said, for Charlie, it was about the fight. He said he would bleed me dry financially and swore I'd never win. He vowed to destroy me, and I have to say it often felt as if he was going to succeed. I also wondered why he felt the need to show up in court with his publicist. My savings disappeared. My legal fees got so high, I almost had to relent. Her parents offered to sell their house at one point to help with their legal fees. Like he was bleeding her dry. And clearly he is an unstable person who is not fit to raise these children. And he's not even somebody who probably wants to raise these children. Yeah. He's not living the lifestyle of a man who wants to be a father. He's just doing this to destroy her. And he has so much money from two and a half men at this point that he is just in it to win and he's going to. And meanwhile, she is being painted to look like the asshole because everyone loves two and a half men. <laughs> I cannot imagine loving two and a half men so much that you turn on a woman, but... <laughs> well, there's no women. Two and a half men. No girls allowed. <laughs> I was gonna say, and then on top of that, of course, she's also dealing with the fact that she's losing her mom to cancer. Yeah. So it is like a really horrible time in her life that goes on for years. They find out that her mom has cancer. She has kidney cancer. And then they go in and do an MRI and they find 40 tumors in her brain. Mm-hmm. She says, I was convinced the chemo had killed the tumors in her body, but in some way caused the cancer to spread to her brain. My theory was unfounded, but I didn't know how well she could go from within a few months of having a clear brain to having 40 tumors there. I didn't get it. I was crushed. So was my dad who hung his head in defeat, trying to hide his tears. This is for RHOBH girls, for the stands out there. She now has this psychotic husband who like doesn't believe in medicine and thinks everything is magnets. He thinks cancer is like a psychosomatic thing that people give themselves and can be yeah, healed. Yeah, mind with, over like, matter. Energy. You don't barf if you don't want to. But seeing that paragraph that she wrote in 2011, I was like, oh, I see how she was susceptible to somebody like him because she is dumb and she is naive and she wants to trust and she wants to be hopeful. And I feel like if you have a crazy man say I have the answers and the doctors were wrong. It's like exactly what she was looking for answer wise. I want to be Denise Richards so bad. You finished this book being like, wow, it would be terrible to be her. And I finished it thinking like, God, I would love to think the way she thinks. I'm obsessed with it. I want to get inside of her head. I'm not going to ever meditate. I'm going to start Denise Richards saying where you like close your eyes in the morning and think about what Denise Richards would do during her day. So things are getting to her <laughs> and it all comes to a head when her friends finally say, you need a night out. Can you get us tickets to American Idol? And she gets them tickets to American Idol. And when she gets there, she's going through the divorce with Charlie. Her mom is on her deathbed. She's out of money. She can't get any work because of her press. She said that all offers dried up and she had no jobs lined up. And then of course her relationship with Richie Zambora is falling apart. So she goes to American Idol and she kind of has a panic attack and throws up. And that is enough for her to be like, I have to go home. She does not like to throw up. Oh my God, we forgot to say. She has a nephew named Alec, named after Alec Baldwin. Oh yeah, her sister loves Alec Baldwin, so she named her son Alec. It's neither here nor there, but I do feel like it, it paints, a, it's just like one more color to add to the tapestry of the Richards' life. <laughs> God, I want to be in that family more than anything. So then her mom passes away at the age of 53, they're heartbroken. She doesn't know how to talk about it to her children. And her mom had sent to a friend some books that are like for children to process grief and was like, give these to Denise after I pass away. And she's like, man, even after my mom was gone, she was still helping me out with everything. And that really, that, it gave me a little yeah. tear. 
So now we're on to the reality show. As we learned from the American Idol story, she has a friendship with Ryan Seacrest, who is, you know, a big time reality TV producer. I feel like, how much money do you think Ryan Seacrest has? I think the other day you said a bazillion is a real number and it's not unless you're talking about Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> he has one bazillion dollars. Two. Two bazillion dollars. So he reaches out and is like, what about a reality show? And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Of course not. But then he calls her again and is like, maybe a reality show. And so when her mom had still been alive, they'd been talking about it a little bit. And her mom's like, this could be exactly what you need to sort of relaunch your image. There is a lot of stories swirling around about you right now. None of them are your voice. None of them are true. I mean, they're true, but like you're the bad guy for some reason. So you should maybe get your story out there proper. She says, and work-wise, well, my career was in the toilet. It was hard for me to accept that my personal life had affected my livelihood, but few people casting new movies and TV shows had me at the top of their list. So for reasons that can best described as all of the above, I decided to move ahead with the reality show. I mean, it's really sad. Initially, she thought her mom was going to recover and her mom like having this heroic recovery would be just like a tentpole moment in the show. Instead, they had to really explore grief. It's I haven't seen the show, but it sounds like they really cover some topics. So her dad moves in with them, and it's the story of her raising her two kids with the dad. Yeah. It was the heyday of E! reality television. So this was on at the time of the Kardashians and Girls Next Door. She says, coming from movies and scripted TV, I was used to scene-by-scene scene direction and hitting certain marks. But on the reality show, I was told to go wherever I wanted and do whatever I planned on doing, which struck me as bizarre. It took a while to adjust. In a way, though, that was a perfect metaphor for what I was trying to do with my life. I had to toss out the old way of doing things, forget about the places I used to stand and create a new vision for myself. I love that for her. Me too. She also really wants to like hang out with the crew and the director is like, on a reality show, the crew has to be invisible. And she's like, no chance, Lance. The crew is going to be my friends. And she's like, by the end of the series, they were eating chicken nuggets with my dad. The show comes out. It's well-received. People start liking her. She gets all of these emails and letters about how people really related to what she went through. She says, I'm always reminded of how similarly most of us live. Anyway, I'm a talker. And I hadn't done much of that since my life had turned into a nonstop soap opera after I got together with Richie. Even though it took doing a reality TV show to open me up, the resulting conversations had a positive effect. So then she does Dancing with the Stars because now she's just a pro at the reality life and it is traumatic. She says, I asked my construction worker brother-in-law if he would bring over a sledgehammer and break my ankle. It'll hurt less, I said. She did drop a whole jean size though, so that was fun for her. And she got kicked out, episode two. But she did say she's never stopped dancing. After she got kicked off the show, she went to dance lessons and she was like, this is the fun way to still get the same workout without the trauma. <laughs> So then she gets into a chapter called Getting Work Done, which is about the work she's had done, and it's only her boobs. She's had her boobs done four times. She got them done at 19 because her friend had good boobs. And so she went and she says that she just wanted small Bs, just something to add a little bit to her frame. And the doctor gave her Ds and she was horrified. She went and got them fixed because she didn't like the way they looked. They made them bigger. They ruptured. So she got them done small. She finally went to a woman. And then she had to get them fixed a fourth time. Like she's had four surgeries on her boobs. So she talked about this on Stern and someone came out and said, that's not true. No plastic surgeon will do your boobs bigger than you want them to be. This is, I think, the third memoir that we've read of someone getting boobs bigger than they wanted put in without their consent. It makes me mad that somebody would say that she's lying. And then she has a little section on weight loss. And I honestly skimmed it. I'm so fucking sick of reading about people's weight loss. I can't think of anything more boring than being like, when my mom died, I was going through a lot. And my dad moved in. He made mashed potatoes. So she gained some weight. And then to lose weight, you know, she, she stopped eating as many mashed potatoes. And she did Pilates. There you go. 
the least interesting shit in the world. You can be anything you want in life, I'll say, but the thing you want to strive for most of all is to be someone you like. That's the end of her weight loss chapter. Then she tells her dad that he needs to start dating again. He cries, she cries. And now the real girl next door. So against all odds, she and Charlie become friends again. I truly cannot fathom how this happened. I do not understand how this man who like set out to ruin her life and kind of almost did very close. And the only reason he didn't successfully ruin her life, I think she's a bright shining star who cannot be put out. Okay. I was going to say because he had a new divorce on his hands and he was probably busy trying to ruin Brooke Mueller's life. Like I think he got too far into drugs to remember his initial cause of ruining Denise Richards. Oh, but also she's a bright shining star who cannot be stamped out. I actually think she could have been if he had just kept with it, but he got divorced again in 2009. So they reconcile right around when she has twins, Bob and Max. Yes. So Brooke has twins and he, you know, invites Denise to come meet them because it's going to be her kids, half siblings. They become sort of friends again. She says, I know I'm not perfect and made mistakes during the worst of our times and I accepted responsibility. It was so much more peaceful when he got to that place where we were able to once again have a civil conversation and then dinner and then be at birthday parties again. All she ever wanted to do was reconcile. So this idea that she needs to take responsibility, he needed to calm down. You need to calm down. You're being too loud. Anyway, so then we go to Christmas 2009, which is once again, her telling of a major press event. Christmas of 2009, she gets a call from Charlie. He's in jail. And instead of being like, what the fuck? She's like, yeah, if you want to talk to your girls, here they are. Say you're skiing. And later she's like, do you need help getting bailed out? And he was like, no, I'm fine. I just wanted to let you know. And later Charlie called to let me know he was out. I heard from him again when he got home. I appreciated his checking in. I think he felt similarly about being able to count on me. By this time, I'd given up trying to make sense of our relationship. I was simply glad we were in an even better place. And it stayed that way through New Year's and into the fall. To be grateful to be in a relationship with your baby daddy where he can call you from jail. God, you're really grasping at straws. Denise, I do think you need to like raise the bar higher for yourself. You deserve better. I understand that you're filled with grace and compassion and forgiveness. But not everyone deserves it. Yeah. Then she plans this whole trip for her daughters to go to New York City. Ever heard of it? No. She wants to bring them. They've never been. And she wants to do like this whole fun, wholesome trip for them where they stay in the Eloise suite at the plaza. She's like, I want to take them to my favorite pizza restaurant. Serafina. She's like the sweetest person alive. Dude, when I was a freshman in college, I really thought Serafina was the spot. So I get it. We've all been. even been. It's like not worth it. Anyway, so then she's talking to Charlie and Charlie's like, I want to come to New York. And she's like, oh my God. Yes, fun, come. And he books them a private jet because he is loaded to hell. He has two and a half men. Yeah, worth of money. The, the same amount of money as two and a half men would normally have, for, but for one man. <laughs> he comes along. She realizes like she has all these moments where she's so happy because her career is going well. She's promoting a new show. This is the first trip that they've all been on as a foursome. So it's like she's flying higher than ever. She's so happy that their broken relationship can still be a happy family. And then on the second night that they're there, he's like, hey, do you want to come out to dinner with me and my friends? And she's like, lovely. I would love to come to dinner with you and your friends. We'll have a babysitter. The, the nanny's here. They, she can watch the girls. She goes to this dinner. They're in a private back room. So she realizes every woman at this dinner who is not Denise Richards is a sex worker. It's Charlie Sheen, one of his friends, and then like five women. She was like, listen, I don't judge anyone for their work. I do just wish that 
on this vacation with my daughters, I hadn't gone out to dinner with a bunch of sex workers. He's clearly like starting a night that I'm not trying to have. She had to wake up at 4.30 a.m. And the one other guy friend left. So it was basically just Denise, her ex-husband, and then like the five women he's paying to have sex with that night, which is not the family vacation of anyone's yeah. dreams, I think. Anyway, one of the women there is like, can I take a photo with you? My boyfriend's a huge fan. So she's like, sure, I trust you. You seem trustworthy. She's like, I'm gonna say goodbye and good night. I don't know if this is where I'm gonna, I have to wake up at 4.30 a.m. I have a very early call time. I'm gonna go upstairs. She goes upstairs, tries to sleep. Middle of the night, she hears the cops banging on her door. And they're like, are you here with Charlie Sheen? And she's like, yes. And they're like, he's your ex? And she's like, yes. And he's like, they're like, is there any chance he's in there with a bunch of sex workers? And she is like, yes. <laughs> he, he is. So they go in and arrest him. And they're like, is this is a manager in town who should come with us. And she goes, I'll come, but I have to be back at 4.30 a.m. because I have to work. And they were like, all right, we can drive you back. That's no problem. So Denise has to get up and take him to the precinct where he's arrested and then come back and go to work. And she had told her kids that they could go to all these interviews with her that day because they were so excited to see the Today Show. And she's like, well, now they can't come because I cannot be fielding questions about a drug-fueled sex party that my ex-husband had. That their dad had? They're like seven and six. So she goes alone. The nanny has to watch them. Of course, it's a huge media shitstorm. And then, of course, the photo of her with that one other woman hits TMZ. So now the storyline is like, Denise Richards goes to drug and sex party with her ex-husband. And she's just like, I don't know how to handle this. She has to get the kids out of there. This is what he says to her. I'm so annoyed. Despite the way the trip ended, I didn't let it affect my relationship with Charlie. In Charlie's eyes at the time, I could do no wrong. He treated me like a champ. For all the assistance I provided in the drama-filled night in New York, he referred to me as his MVP. From such a big sports fan as him, I knew that was a serious compliment. He also said that I was finally getting the respect I deserved. After everything we'd been through, that compliment meant a lot. I have to say... As the person who was mostly disrespecting you, I don't think you should have been looking for like kudos from him. This is the part of the book where I finally said, Denise, what the fuck happened to you? This that is made enough. you like have so little self-respect. I understand this is the father of your children. He will always be in your life. Legally, you cannot get out of it and you wanted to help him out. But then to take pride in the fact that he was like, hey, you did a great job bailing me out of a terrible situation I put you in last night. You need to have some self-respect. You need to start being angry at people. It's just not healthy. It's not good for her to then be looking to this man who has caused her, her parents almost sold their house. Her yeah. mother, the year before she died of cancer, almost was homeless because of what this man did to her on a whim to be mean. And here she is grateful that he's complimenting her after bailing her out of jail. It's sick. After him, her bailing him out of jail. Yes, sorry. For the next few months, I was involved with my busy home life. My days were packed with school activities and playdates for the girls, going on auditions and building my web presence. She loves Twitter. <laughs> Shortly after the holidays, Charlie called to invite the girls and me to go with him to Las Vegas. I politely declined, which earned me a call from his friend. I'll leave my phone on at night in case something happens, I said with a knowing laugh. He said, okay. And then that's the night he went out and he found this woman that he called his goddess and decided he was going to live in a house with like four girlfriends and have a porn family and tiger blood. A few days later, I visited Charlie. I was concerned about his behavior and so were others in his life. I explained that I'd read a book to the girls to help them understand him better. So she talks to her daughters about addiction. Because at this point, she's like, they're going to find out. Yeah. It's not just on the internet. It's all anybody was talking about. I mean, he was the conversation on yeah. everybody's mind. I think he was also railing against the two and a half man, men producers at this point. I mean, she writes that he later got fired, but at that point he was like, I mean, he was saying horrible things about his bosses, which like, I mean, honest Hollywood producers, probably really bad people, but every day he was in the news with a new quote. I, you could not escape Charlie Sheen. 
So then she says, I'm not judging you. This is your life. I'm just being honest. And right now I'm worried about you. Thanking me and reassuring me that he was okay. He told me his plan was to move four women into his home. They'd be his girlfriends, his porn family, as he called it. I could see how a young guy in his 20s might fantasize about having several girlfriends living with him. But at 45 years old and with five children, I had trouble comprehending this. Denise, he is an addict going through an absolute episode. Things are hard. And she said, I kept asking myself, why does their dad have to live such an outrageous life? She goes to her daughter's school to watch them perform and she's having a little breakdown because she's like, why is their dad the craziest one? An outrageous life is a nice way to say it. Then I reminded myself, I can't change Charlie. He is merely being himself. He never professed to be anyone else. I try to be philosophical as it is the only option in such circumstances. You don't have to ignore the roiling emotions that come with upsets and disappointments. But as I learned time and time again, you can't crumble either. For whatever reason, Charlie and I were on a journey together. We created two magnificent lives and therefore we were going to be in each other's lives forever. Instead of flying off the handle and making judgments on him, I keep moving forward. Quite frankly, I've learned my opinion doesn't matter a lot of the time, so why make our relationship more volatile and chaotic? I don't see any sense in stressing about things I can't control. I've been asked how I'm handling this all lately, but the reality is I've been handling this on and off for seven years. The truth is, this is not the man I married. This is the man I divorced. That's a good line. Yeah, I actually think that's a good line. And then she says, it's not easy, believe me. Charlie has a sharp tongue, and when we disagree, I am on the receiving end of some pretty colorful speeches. Sometimes it's hard to let his insults roll off my back, but I do. In his defense, he often accuses me of being unreasonable when I turn into a protective mother hen. He says I shelter the girls too much. Maybe I do. I don't care. At times, his lifestyle veers in colorful directions, and I don't want the girls around it. I can see why she doesn't want him having partial custody if that means staying with his porn family. I had to say she said that he offered to buy her a house up the road from his porn family and she wasn't going to live in it, but then he reneged on that offer anyway. And I'm like, I kind of think he would have taken him up on it. I low-key think he would have been like, okay, we're going to be a family. (laughs) Us and your five girlfriends and all of your cocaine. And then she says while writing this chapter, he got fired from Two and a Half Men for talking shit about the producers. And she says, what did surprise me was how very public Charlie wanted his thoughts to be. It breaks my heart. He's an amazing actor with the capacity to be an amazing person and father. It hurts me to see him like this. And then she goes on to say, and this is the most Denise quotes of all Denise quotes. I've learned a lifetime of a lifetime of lessons from him and I'm still learning. That doesn't mean I'm always clear on what I've learned. I'm not. It takes time to see good, <laughs> see the good come to the light of that of the bad, but eventually things make sense. I'm always learning. I don't know what the lesson is, but it keeps teaching. She has Shania Twain disease. I under, sometimes you have to say no. Yeah. But I don't know why she has Shania Twain disease. She says, I make my mistakes. I learn. I try my best. As always, I'm rooting for him. It means the best for us. One thing I wouldn't tell myself is to do anything differently. So, so then it ends with she's turned 40. She's trying her best at her career. She has a great group of gal pals. They get together once a month and have dinner and support each other. One of them is Lisa Rinna, who absolutely threw her out of the window in Real Housewives, which is fucked up. She loves animal rescues. I make my children my top priority. I try to help my dad and I put family at the center of my life. I get involved in causes. That's about all anyone can do in life. You face each day, you try your best. I mean, what's truer than that? All of us are part of a community where we can support each other. If you don't believe me, find me through my website or Twitter. She loves Twitter. I want to read one line from her acknowledgments. Please. I know we don't usually touch the acknowledgments, but this is, I think, important. My Twitter followers. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you for your love and support and for inspiring me to write this book. <laughs> I need you guys to know that Ashley and finding a roundup of Twitter quotes in this book before we recorded started crying. She's crying right now. I wish you guys could see it. So meet her on Twitter. Ashley, final thoughts on Denise Richards in this book. I want literally nothing but the best for her. I love her so much. I want her crazy husband to like have an epiphany where suddenly he believes in science. I want her children to support her. I hope her dad and her sister are doing well. I like, I love her. Same, same. She's a sweet angel. I hope she's okay now. I know that her life is being ruined by Aaron. He sucks. On the Patreon this week, you guys, we are going to get into it. We're doing blind items. We're doing recall. We're doing... We're going to watch videos. We're going to do a lot of research and come at you guys with one of the best Patreons of all time. I'll even do a little deep dive on Aaron, her husband, who was formerly married to Terry Hatcher. We love you guys so much. And Ashley, who do we love more than anybody? We love our five-star reviewers. Thank you to GS Speak 777 Thank you for speaking me this gorgeous review. Thank you, Heather Rinna. I'm sorry if you're related to Lisa Rinna and we just disparaged you. I take it all back. Toothpick fan, one, two, three. Hell yeah, baby. I'm happy your teeth are clear. Ape caper. I will steal any ape with you. Let me know when's the next caper. Loves to cook in GR. Listen, much love for your home cooking. Invite me over for dinner sometime. Auntie Riri, thank you for being the coolest aunt in town. Luba666, the cutest butt in town. Sugar Wall, an absolutely sweet way to build a house. Cock Lover, hell yeah, baby. You and me both. <laughs> EJ Two Oms, however many oms you have, I'm there for it. Ecat1987 forever. Cats have nine lives, baby. And as far as I'm concerned, that's forever. Caroline S., the number one Caroline in my book. Caroline A. M. Waters116. Thank you for keeping us hydrated. Katie C. 907. Thank you for hosting the Today Show for all that time. Rachel1. Za. My favorite flavor of pizza. Thank you, Maitland K., you're okay in my book. Thank you, FC Bro, for being the numero uno bro. Let me know when you want to play beer pong. Lakot Sud. Corgi George for being the cutest little pup with the squiggliest butt. Boston Babe 37 for being an absolute beantown hero. AEI Hab. Thanks for rehabilitating this reviews section. Olivia BR95. Thank you for keeping things chilly. Exleafter. Thank you for X marking the spot. Morally corrupt Faye Resnick. Listen, this review is morally sound if you ask me. Tabby Money Sign. Thanks for keeping it, keeping the cash flow real. Emma Walker. I'll walk wherever you friggin' go. Sinner 19. Listen, what happens in podcast days in podcast? Screecher creature, I respect the sound of your screeching. Cat1999, thanks for keeping those paws high. Mchar50, the perfect way to eat a hot dog. Valerie831, 
my favorite area code for a Valerie. Thank you guys so much. That's all for this week. I love you forever.